All right, Shabbos, say good morning. Begin by thanking our sponsors, our Talmud Torah sponsors for the month of ER, Yonah and Shishi Ehrenfeld, for dedicating all the Shurman Drashos this month in memory and Lezech and Nishmas, their grandfather Yosef Ben Shmuel Aaron, Mark Karstadt for dedicating the Shurman Drashos this month in memory of his mother, Hannah Bas Shragai, and they have learning sponsor, Rabbi Chaim and Malki Wecker, Le'ilui Nishmas Chaim's grandfather, Mr. Sai Bayek, Shlomo Ben Chaim Tzvi, whose yard site is today, who really, uh, you know, Mr. Beg, Zichon Levracha, was one of the charter members of our Dafyomi. He was part of our first cycle, was a pillar of the shul. Again, for those of you who are, have been here for a little bit of time, you know that uh, Mr. Bayek was often here early afternoon on Shabbos afternoon preparing Shabbos. So this was an individual who was incredibly committed to the shul in a very quiet and understated way, without any need for praise, without any need for accolade. Just saw the incredible, incredible merit and service, and we hope that his neshama has an aliyah. Also, you know, Moshe Abramson made a, made a very nice recommendation to me that maybe what we'll do is over the next 45 days, Emir Tzashem, we'll dedicate each day of the year in memory of uh, one of the Kiddoshim of Meron. That way, again, hopefully connecting with their neshamas just a little bit in an effort to become one, feel part of this incredible tragedy of Klal Yisrael. So today we dedicate our learning, Le'ilo Nishmas Menachem Zekbach, Menachem Zekbach was 24 of Modi in elite, who Rahman al-Islam left behind a one-year-old child together with a pregnant wife. We hope that in the merit of our Tamatora, his Nisham will have an aliyah and the family in Nechama. And we'll say with that, let us begin. So today's daf is Chav Gimel. We are picking up, we have a lot to do today. We have enough time here in Sashem. We are picking up on Chav Beis and with Beis 22b. And we left off, we left off in the widest of the lines, the first of the widest of the lines. We left off yesterday, right after the discussion regarding Alti Tzadik Harbe, right? Remember again that Shaul fails to carry through on the command of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to wipe out Amalek, because suddenly again he's having this dramatic theological theological challenge. How could I wipe out an entire nation when Egla Arufa is brought even just for one neshama, to which the Baskal comes out and says, Alti Tzadik Harbe, don't be so righteous. Don't be so righteous. Don't be firmer than God. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells you to do something, by definition, it is good and just. My obligation is simply to carry through. And when again, I will say, remember again, this is the terrible catastrophe where Shaul ordered the execution of Nov Ir HaKonim. He wiped out an entire city of Kohanim because he thought that they aided and embedded David. And remember again, at this point in time, Shaul sees David as his mortal enemy. He commands Doeg to go ahead and wipe out the Kohanim. Do not be such a terrible Russia. Amar of Hunar. So I'll say it's interesting. When it says, Alti Tzadik Harbei, it's interesting that almost like what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling us is, at the end of the day, no one could be incredibly righteous or perpetually righteous. No one could be perpetually wicked. Find, try to find the right medium. Try to find the Derech of the middle path. You don't have to be overly righteous, but you also can't be overly wicked. Try to find that right balance in life. Incredible. How lucky, if you actually, if you look at Rashi, Rashi says, Rashi says, How, how lucky and confident a person is. 
and how little they have to worry. Mikalra, ba'ozro. So we'll say how much confidence and how little worry a person has to have if they know that the Ribbono Shalolam is in their corner assisting them. The Imar says, what are examples of this? The Imar says, Shaul ba'achaz va'asalo. Because, for example, Shaul committed one Avera, and yet ultimately, again, he was punished for it. David bishtayim v'lo'asalo. David committed two Averas, but yet ultimately, again, at Kaddish Baruch Hu, Kaddish Baruch Hu did not allow those Averas to adversely impact him. So we'll say the Gemara is contrasting David and Shaul. Shaul as someone with whom Hashem has forsaken, and David as someone who has the ability to depend on the Ribbono Shalom. So the Gemara is saying how lucky you are when the Ribbono Shalom is in your corner. Why? Because at the end of the day, you don't even have to worry about your Averis impacting you. But again, if, so the Gemara says, let's, let's see. The Gemara says, David what was Shaul's sin? So the Gemara says, my said the Agag, it was the episode of Agag. And remember again, that's the Amalek. And Shaul's failure to wipe out Amalek ultimately cost him the crown. What about the episode where Shaul wiped out Nov, the city of Kohanim? Amai said the Agag siv nichanti kim lachti as Shaul. Lamelech. Ultimately, you're going to both say, even though you're right, Shaul was held responsible for what happened in Nov, but he lost the monarchy because of what happened with Agag, the king of Amalek. David Bishtaim, what were David's two Averus? Mayninhu, the Uria Uda Sasa. His two Averus were the fact that he had Uria killed. Remember again, he ordered Uria to be placed on the front lines of the battle in order that he would be killed. And Hasasa, I will say, Hasasa literally means incitement. Rashi understands that this is a reference to the fact that at the end of David Amalek's life, he ordered a census. We saw in yesterday's daf how careful one has to be to avoid counting Jews. Yet David HaMelech, before he died, ordered a direct census. Yet, interestingly enough, David HaMelech committed these two Averis. Yet the Ribbono Shal Olam found the way to forgive him for it. Ultimately, as Rashi, I shouldn't say, it's not really forgiveness. It's also, also low l'ra'a, right? Ultimately, again, we'll say it, that these Averis did not adversely impact David HaMelech. But what about the episode of Batsheva? Why, why, why are you only counting two Averis? Is there not also the episode of Batsheva? There, say by Batsheva, punishment was exacted from David HaMelech. So you're say the Gemara is referring to episodes where a person committed an infraction and we don't see a stated punishment. So David HaMelech, with Uriah and with the, with the census, we don't see a stated punishment. The Gemara says, what about Batsheva? But Sheva, there was a punishment. What was the punishment? That the Navi Nasa Navi says to David, David, you are going to pay fourfold for the young lamb. The young lamb was a reference to Batsheva. And ultimately, again, David Amalek is told he's going to pay fourfold. There's going to be a fourfold punishment for what happened with Batsheva. What's the fourfold punishment? So the Gemara says, Yeled, the fact that his infant child died, Amnon. We'll say, remember again, Amnon is the episode where Amnon, Amnon raped his half-sister, Tamar. These are all children of David Amalek. Tamar was the rape of Tamar. Avshalom, we'll say, now remember again, you know the story, Avshalom goes and kills Amnon, but as a result has to flee from marriage. He still has a falling out with his father. So we'll say, so again, four, four punishments for the, or four repercussions for the episode of Batsheva, to which the Gemara says, I, Bavahasam Nami, Ifra'u Mineh, 
But I will say, but again, there also, there also, the punishment was exacted from David HaMelech Tichsev, Vayitin Hashem Dever, I'm sorry, by the census also. By the census also there was a punishment. What was the punishment by the census? Vayitin Hashem Dever Ba'am Mina Boker Va'ad Eismoed. So there was a punishment also by the census. Hasan Lo Iframi Guve. So I will say, here's the difference. By the census there was a punishment, but there was no punishment exacted from Davin HaMelech himself. There was no punishment to his guf. I, the Gemara says, Hasam Nami Lo Iframi Gufe. But one second, even with the episode of Batsheva, as much as there's a fourfold punishment, none of those directly impacted the Guf of David, right? Yeled, Amnon, Tamar, Shalom, those Rechonas were all his children, but they didn't impact his body. Lo Iframi Gufe. It's not true. Darunach was also punished physically. Damrav Yehudamarav, Shisha Chadashim Nitztar David, Uparshim and Sanhedrin, Finestalkam and Ushchino. It's not true. In the aftermath of the episode of Batsheva, David was afflicted with Saras. For six months, and as a result, the Sanhedrin separated from him. The Shechina, Ruach HaKodesh, left him. Right, but also there's another episode. What another Aveira of David Amalekh, which is he was Makaba Lashon Hara. So Rashi points out over here that this refers to an episode with Mipi Boshes and Siva. Mipi Boshes was the sur- one surviving member of Shaul's household, right? He was a son of Yonah's son. So interestingly enough, Mipi Boshes, so, so David Amalekh made a covenant with Mipi Boshes. When David Amalekh is on the run, from Avshalom, so he sees Tziva, and Tziva was, Tziva was the servant of Mipiboshes. And David says to Tziva, why didn't Mipiboshes, why didn't he join me as I'm fleeing from Yerushalayim? To which Tziva lied, and Tziva said, ah, oh, Mipiboshes is rejoicing in the fact that now you have been overthrown just like you overthrew his grandfather. David, now that was a lie. That was like Tziva was angling for David HaMelech's favor. So we'll say, so David HaMelech was Mechabal, the Lashon Hara. So I, why isn't that sin reckoned over here as well? Because we'll say, Zmechalkes and Shmuel holds that it was not Mechabal, Lashon Hara, and Mipi Boshes. And according to Rafu, who says that David was Mechabal, Lashon Hara, punishment was exacted from David for this particular Avera. The Amar of Yehuda, Amarav, Bishash, Amarlo Davin and Mipi Boshes. Amarti Atta Vitsiva Techalko as Asada, because we'll say interestingly enough, when David was Makaba Lashon Hara, ultimately again about Mipi Boshes, when he orders Tsiva, he gives all of Mipi Boshes' property to Tsiva. When he then finds out ultimately again that Siva maybe made up the story, he splits the property between Siva and Mipi Boshes, which also is inappropriate because Mipi Boshes did not do anything wrong, yet David seized his property from him. So the Basko comes out when David Amalek says that and says the same way, Amarti, Atav Siva, Techalkoes Asada, Yotza Basko, Omra Rechavam, Viravam, Yechalkoes Amalchus. So it's actually really a profound idea. That at the time when David Melech inappropriately split the estate of Mipi Boshes and divided it between Mipi Boshes and Siva, Abbasko came out and said, Just like you divided up this estate, so too I will divide up your kingdom between Rechavam, who was the son of Shlomo HaMelech, David Melech's grandson, and Yeravam ben Nevat, who becomes the first king 
over new Malchus Yisrael, which I will say such a profound idea. What's, what's, the, what's the connection there? Okay, David made a mistake. And even if you want to say, it wasn't the Kabbalah Hara. So because he inappropriately went ahead and divided up an estate belonging to Mibibosheth, therefore the monarchy is going to be split. It's a very, a very, very strange thing. So perhaps the Pashib Shat in the Gemara is the primary job, so this is already going back to the coronation of Shol, the primary job of a Melech is to go ahead and provide an orderly society. That's the job of a Melech, to make sure that general society is just, that general society is moral, that general society is good, that people treat each other appropriately. And when Davin HaMelech is Mechabal Lashen Hara, and seizes someone's property in an inappropriate way, it fundamentally undermines the entire mission of the monarchy. It fundamentally tears apart the fabric of the monarchy to the point that the Gemara says, you undermine the fabric of the monarchy, the fabric of the monarchy will become undone with the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. Incredible Gemara. So we'll say the Gemara goes right there. You see from here, by the way, how just important it is day in and day out, to be a good person, to be a just person, to be an honest person. We can't have a normal society if we don't treat each other correctly. It's such a, right? It's good to be pious, and it's good to be a tzaddik, and it's good to learn a lot of Torah, and it's good to learn a lot of chesed. That, that's all good. That's all good. But at the end of the day, you have to be a good person, a solid good person, day in and day out. Incredible. Ben Shana Shaul B'Machos. Well, listen to this. So Shaul was one year into his monarchy. So the Gemara says, Amr, so the Gemara says, we're recording the Pasuk. Yeah, Ben Shana Shaul B'Machos, Ushtei Shana Malach Al Yisrael. So listen to this. So the Gemara says, Amr Avuna, Ke Ben Shana Shaul Tam Tam Chait. So Avuna says, Shaul was so righteous that he was like a one-year-old who never sinned. Who never tasted the taste of sin? So maybe he was like a one-year-old whose diaper is dirty, right? He's always smeared with uh, dirt. So I'll say, maybe maybe the comparison to a one-year-old is not to highlight his personal piety, but maybe the comparison to the one-year-old is just as the one-year-old is, you know, often is covered in his own shmutz. So, so too, Shaul was covered in a lot of shmutz as well. So, we'll also listen to this. That night, Rav Nachman spoke disparagingly about Shaul. That night, he had a dream. And in the dream, a group of destructive angels came to visit him. He realized that those destructive malachim came because he spoke, he spoke disparagingly about Shaul. So he says, I apologize to you, bones of Shaul. Okay? Next night, Hadr Next night, he had the same dream, the destructive group of angels. And what does he say? Amr, Shaul ben Kish. Melech Yisrael. Jehovah said the first time when he apologized to Shaul, he just called him Shaul. But he did not call him King Shaul. And the Malachim, the destructive Malachim came back. The second night when he has the same dream, he realizes that he is being, not being proper with the covenant. Ultimately, again, of Shaul. So I apologize to you, bones of Shaul, Melech Yisrael. We'll say incredible. I'm Rav Yudam Shmuel. We'll say ultimately, we'll listen to this profound Gemara. Why is it that the monarchy of Shaul did not endure? Now, I will say, the truth is, this is not really such a good kasha, because we know at the end of the day, 
Shaul was from the Shevet of Ephraim, right? Monarchy comes from the Shevet of Yehuda. But the Gemara wants to understand why was it so short-lived? Why was it so short-lived? So the truth is, we know the answer to that also, right? The answer to that was because of the episode with Amalek. We just saw that before. But the Gemara is kind of saying like on a global level, it almost appears like this monarchy was never really, was never really fated to go ahead and, and, and last. So why was it that the monarchy had such a short shelf life? So we'll say, this is incredible. We'll say, get ready for this answer. The Gemara says, because Shaul's genealogy, his pedigree, was too perfect. It was too perfect. There were no genealogical blemishes in Shaul's family tree. We'll listen to this. Because Rabbi Shimon and Yotzadik says, we only appoint a leader upon the Jewish people if he has a bag of shratzim hanging around his neck. What does that mean? We only appoint leaders who have genealogical imperfections. Why, says the Gemara? Why, says the Gemara? Because the Gemara says, uh, Because if he becomes a Balgaiva, if he becomes very arrogant, then what? We tell him, look what's behind you. Look what's behind this. We both say, this is actually an incredible So We've spoken about this before. If you think about, again, our monarchy, Davidic monarchy, which is not just monarchy, but the very, but the very line of Mashiach. So we'll say, where does David HaMelech come from? So remember again, first, there's the whole strange episode with Yehuda and Tamar. Strange episode. And then I will say, David HaMelech descends from Gerim, right? Descends from Rus HaMoavia. If you look at general monarchy, 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 monarchy prides itself on a pure bloodline, on a pure genealogy. Yet our monarchy hails from these incredibly strange stories. It's by design to keep the monarchy humble. So if a monarch goes ahead and gets a little bit carried away with himself, you open up a Chomish, we say, by the way, let's learn about the, the Alter Baba Alter Zaydel, right? Let's learn about Yudin Tamar. All right, the monarchy gets a little bit carried away from himself. Just remember, you are a descendant of Geirin. You're a descendant of Rusam Avio, who was a very righteous woman. But again, she was a convert. She was a convert. She's not someone who was born into this. Again, incredible woman, Tzadikas. But it's not the typical genealogy of monarchy. And the Gemara says, it is by design in order to keep the monarchy humble. Incredible. This is an incredible Gemara. Why was Shaul punished? Remember, the Gemara has already answered these questions, but the Gemara is trying to kind of understand that sometimes you read certain stories and it almost seems like, like the individual was doomed. It almost seems like Shaul from the beginning was not destined. His monarchy was not destined to last. He was not destined... What happened? So we'll say this is so profound. Because we'll say ultimately again, Shaul was mochal on his covet. Shaul did not demand his honor. He was, he was mavater. He just, he just kind of gave, he, he gave in on his honor. He did not stand, sorry, word mochal al kavodo. He yielded his honor. He yielded his honor. Shinemar, ubenei bili al amru, ma yoshi enu zevi vazeu. Because when Shaul was first appointed king, people disparaged him. Who is this guy that he's going to save us? Who is this guy that he's going to do anything for us? And they did not bring him tribute. And what happens? And what was Shaul's reaction? Shaul's reaction was he was quiet. And immediately afterwards, right? the enemies of the Jewish people, Amon marched on Eretz. So we'll see something amazing. That the Melech, the Melech, and in many respects, 
those in positions of leadership, of course, they're both saying, any person, you don't always stand up for your covet. Because at the end of the day, sometimes it's just good to yield. But a leader, a leader has an obligation to make sure that his kavod remains intact. Because his kavod is not his kavod. If he's the king, it's the monarchy. As we'll see in just a little bit, if it's a Talmud Chacham, it's the kavod of Torah. So although there are times where you let things go, and you can be mochel on your kavod, for the leader, for the melech, ultimately, again, there are times where he must demand proper respect. Because if there's an erosion of respect, then there's an erosion of authority of the office. Whether it's for the Melech, whether it's for the Manning, and the Gemara goes right to it. And therefore, Shaul's punished because people disparaged him and he did not say anything. He did not say anything. So the Gemara says, They're called Tamit Chacham, Tap of Chav Gimel. Shinonoki Kenachash. This is an interesting Gemara. Any Tamit Chacham who doesn't take revenge like a snake, is not a Talmud Chacham. Then I will say, this is actually very interesting. What, what does this mean? Right? Nekim and Atir, Sigmar says, one second, really a Talmud Chacham is supposed to take revenge? Vaksiv, lo sikim, lo sitar. But the Torah says, now that I take revenge. Now I will say, remember again, we'll discuss the difference between Nikima and Natira. We'll translate them both as revenge right now, but we're going to see they're different types of revenge. So the Gemara says, how can you tell me? So we'll say the Gemara says, the Tamtracham has to take revenge. And if he doesn't take revenge like a snake, he's not the Tamtracham. I, but the Torah says, now let it take revenge. Hahu bin mamanhu. We both say, interesting enough, that's referring to financial matters. The Talmud Chacham should not take revenge when it comes to financial matters. But if someone is pogame in his covet, if somebody go ahead, goes ahead and diminishes or somehow chips away at the covet of the Talmud Chacham, the Talmud Chacham should not take it sitting down. He should bite back. You should back. Now, both say, now the logic of the Gemara is, although we're going to refine it much more, the logic of the Gemara is that the covet of a Talmud Chacham is the covet of Torah. And when one disparages the Talmud Chacham, they're disparaging Torah and by extension disparaging the Ribbon Sha'olam. There are certain things you could just take and kind of let slide, and there are other things that a person has to stand up for. So a person goes ahead and maligns a Talmud Chacham, person maligns Torah, the Talmud Chacham must take revenge like a snake. What that means, we'll see. So also listen to this. What's Nikima? What's Natira? Like I said before, we translate them both as revenge. But in fact, they're different forms of revenge. The Gimara says, Amarlo, Hishilani Magalcha, I go over to Ruven and say, Ruven, can you lend me your axe? Amarlo Lav, and Ruven says no. So the next day, or imagine Magalcha saw, the next day Ruven comes to me and he says, Can I borrow your axe? And I say to him, And I say, Ruve, no, I'm not going to lend you my axe because you will not lend me your saw. So he nikima. We'll say, that's revenge. That's revenge. When I ask you for something, you don't do it for me. And then you ask me for something and I say no to you because I'm getting you back for, for, for the way you wronged me. That's the kima. What's Natira? Supposed to listen to this. I go over to her and say, Ruve, can you lend me your axe? And Ruve says, no. The next day, Reuven comes over to him and says, Can I buy your jacket? And I say to him, Hey, look. I say, Of course. And I say to him, Of course you can borrow it. You know why? I'm not like you. I'm not like you. But I say, That's Natira. So I say, Interestingly enough, Natira is where I don't take revenge in the act, but I harbor animosity in my heart. So that's the difference. Nikima means, right? Taking revenge means you did to me. I'm going to do the same thing back to you. Natira means you did to me, you did to me, 
I'm going to show you that I'm better than you, but I still harbor this animosity towards you. So he netira. So the Gemara says, Rabbi says, listen to this. So therefore, what the Gemara is suggesting over here is as follows. When the Torah says, lo sikim lo sitar, so, that, so, so that, that refers to financial matters, and that's the examples the Gemara gives. But when it says that Tamut Chacham is supposed to take revenge, that apparently refers to the fact that if people make the Tamut Chacham suffer, or if people humiliate the Talmud Chacham, for that the Talmud Chacham is obligated to go ahead and take revenge. I will say it's very strong Gemara. Not, you know, it's not just you can, it's the Talmud Chacham is obligated. And remember again, that's the comparison with the Gemara and Shoal. The Gemara is saying Shoal was punished, Shoal lost the monarchy because he did not quote unquote take revenge, he did not respond when he should have responded. So the Gemara says, Utsara de Gufelo. So is that true? When it comes to personal suffering, right? When it comes to humiliation or degradation, that there's no problem taking revenge to the Talmud Chacham. But we learned, Vatanya Basay, a very profound Gemara, Hane Alavim Ve'enon Ulvin, Shomen Cher Pasam Enamashir, say, those who are disparaged, but do not disparage in return, right? Those who hear their degradation, but do not respond. O Sine Ava, Usmechim Bisurin, serve Akadish Baruch with love and rejoice in suffering. Alena Kasav Omer, about them, the Pasuk says, About them, the Pasuk says, And his beloved ones will, will shine as the sun in his brightness. So, interestingly enough, so you see from here, that there is a concept of taking revenge, even just, even just with your own humiliation. The Gemara says, the Gemara extols the individual who goes ahead and is degraded, but doesn't respond. There's a certain power. We all know this, right? We teach this to our children from a young age. There's a certain power in restraint. Just because someone hurts you does not mean you respond in kind. So what's going on over here with the Tamut Chacham? Yet the Gemara is telling me that the Tamut Chacham is obligated to take revenge. To which the Gemara says, you're right. Well, so this is incredible. The Talmud Chacham himself does not go ahead and take revenge. But the Talmud Chacham also doesn't have to forget about the hurt that was visited upon him. And if someone else is ready to take revenge on behalf of the Talmud Chacham, the Talmud Chacham need not stop that individual. So if someone sees the degradation of the Tamut Chacham, and that person wants to take revenge on behalf of the Tamut Chacham, the Tamut Chacham need not intervene to stop that person from what he's doing. I have Hamarava, Barava said, So we'll say, but one second, don't we always extol the power of being Ma'avir Amidosav? What does it mean to be Ma'avir Amidosav? To be an easygoing, forgiving person. And yet here the Gemara is saying that the Tamut Chacham is able to go ahead and hold on to this animosity. And even if he himself is not going to take revenge, at the end of the day, if someone else wants to take revenge on his behalf, he need not stop that individual. But don't we always learn that it's good to be Mavra Amidosav, it's good to be a forgiving person? It is incredible. To which the Gemara says, Yeah, that's true if the person who hurt me is trying to make amends. Right? If the person who hurt me is trying to apologize, yes, then of course I should accept. I have to go and be an, an, an easy to forgive, no achlirzos, an easy to forgive person, right? Or a person who easily forgives, right? And a person ultimately, again, who is mevatr, is mavramidosov. But if the person who hurt the Tamut Chacham doesn't care and is not trying to ask for forgiveness, the Tamut Chacham has every single right, has every single right to nurture that animosity. And even though he himself may not go ahead and take that revenge, at the end, if somebody wants to avenge the wrongs of the Tamut Chacham, the Talmud Chacham need not stop that individual. And I will say, so that's the conclusion of the Gemara. But what I will tell you is something very interesting. 
there's a difference between just because you have a right to do something does not mean that it's a good idea. So what the Gemara says is the Talmud Chacham has a right, has a right to take revenge. However that revenge manifests itself and clearly has a right to harbor and nurture negative feelings towards someone who has wronged him. And I will say, of course, on one level, what the Gemara is teaching us is that sometimes, Tam Chacham represents Torah. You know, I will say, when there is an affront to Torah, there is an obligation to stand up. Now again, you have to know when to stand up, and you have to know how to stand up, and to whom to stand up. That's a very delicate dance. But when something is an affront to Torah, to the Rebbeinu Sha'olam, you can't just take it sitting down. There has to be a macha, there has to be an objection, there has to be a response. So the Gemara is saying, Tam is even permitted to go ahead and nurture animosity. So I'll say again, I want to point out, like I said before, just because you can doesn't mean it's a good idea. Rabbi Tversky, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, has a beautiful statement where he says that harboring a grudge, harboring a grudge is allowing someone to live in your head rent-free. So just because you are permitted to nurture animosity towards the other does not mean that it's a good idea. Because at the end of the day, it occupies prime, it's like prime waterfront emotional real estate, right? No one would put a sandbox on their waterfront lot because it's just not the right use of waterfront real estate. There's only a limited amount of emotional real estate. And if you occupy it with the wrong things, you really go ahead and put yourself at a disadvantage. So even though you might have a right, it's or we, the Tamut Chacham may have a right to nurture some animosity towards the other one, having a right to do something doesn't always mean that it's dafka the right thing to do. In general, whenever harboring ill will, nurturing animosity, bearing a grudge towards the other, a person always has to ask themselves a simple question. Is it worth tying up my emotional real estate with this negativity? I, I think that more often than not, the answer to that is no. The answer to that is no. However terrible the trespass, however terrible the, the slight, at the end of the day, it's so much better for me to let go of the negativity, stop, stop, stop occupying precious re- emotional real estate, and move on and accomplish great things in life. Gemara goes right there. Umahi Motsis. Let's remember again, back to the Mishnah. Remember again, the Mishnah said that if there was a tie, if there was a tie, so the Kohanim would go ahead and, the Kohanim would go ahead and, the Kohanim would go ahead and, um, stick out fingers, right? They would do a count off. So the Gemara says, Hashta, Remember again, so the Mishnah said, they could either extend one finger or two fingers. So the Gemara says, I don't understand. Once you tell me they could extend two fingers, then obviously they what? Could extend one finger. We'll say, interesting, the Gemara says, no, no, no. Really what it means is like this. You're actually only allowed to extend one finger. But if a coin was ill, and let's say therefore was unable to, let's say, go ahead and control his fingers well, so he extended two fingers, then we would let him do that. We would let him do that. But we learned, I, but we have another price that says, the coin could only extend one finger for the count off, and not two. When is that? So we'll say again, if a coin was healthy, we tell him, yes, only one finger. But if it was a chola, and he, could, he couldn't help but extend two fingers, that was fine. Furthermore, again, there were individuals 
who would stick out two fingers. But even if he stuck out two fingers, they're both sides, the Mamuna would only count one. It's very interesting. So they remember, even if he had two fingers extended, those two fingers were only counted as one. Is that true? When during the count, you can't extend a middle finger, nor can you extend the thumb because of the people who are tricksters. Now we'll say, we'll discuss exactly how people play tricks with the thumbs. So if a person extended a middle finger, you could count the middle finger, but we don't count thumbs. Furthermore, we'll say, if you stuck out a middle finger or a thumb, you got hit by the mamuna with a pakia. We'll discuss what that means also. We'll say, what this sounds like is, if you stuck out multiple fingers, you would be counted multiple fingers. My mona lo nami achos. says, no, no, no. Even if you end up extending multiple fingers, the halach is about to say they would only count one. So about to say it's interesting gemara. So whether so at the end of the day, each coin only got counted once, no matter how many fingers he had extended. Whether you extended extra fingers to try to, to try to place some shtick, or you extended extra fingers because you were a chola, the fingers were only counted as one. So Bosi is interesting. So the Gemara now said before, if you stuck out a middle finger or a thumb, you got hit by the coin with a pakia. My pakia, amarav madra. Ras is a madra. Thank you. My madra. So what's a madra? Says the Gemara. Amarav papa, mitarka detai de pasigresha. This is the whip that the Arabs used, that the Arabs used to go ahead and hit their horses, to go ahead and move faster, the psikresha that has a split tip. So I'll say, so apparently again it was a whip, and the top of the whip had a split tip. It was split into a bunch of different parts. So that's what the Arabs would use to whip their horses to go faster. And I will say again, if you are a coin who played shtick, and the coin, the mamuna, caught you extending more than one finger, you would get clapped with the pakia. Good. So the Gemara says, "Amra Baye, Meresh Hava Amina Hadisnan Ben Bivoy Mamuna Ala Pakia." So we'll say. So remember again, Abaye says, "We'll say just just going a little bit further with this." The the Mishnah says, "Ben Bivoy, he was in charge of the Pakia." So Abaye says, "In the beginning, I thought Amina Psulta. I thought Pakia meant wicks." Because as we'll see a little bit later on, from the worn out clothing of the Kohanim, they used to make wicks. And those were the wicks which were used to kindle the menorah. Or I should say, to cash in the kindle the menorah. To kindle the courtyard, we'll see. So the Gemara says, But now that I heard that what does pakia mean? Pakia doesn't mean wicks. Rather, what does pakia mean? Pakia means whip. Then I realized that ultimately, again, when it says Ben Bivai was in charge of the pakia, he was the guy who would clap the Kohanim who were pulling shtick with the count. That if you extend there an extra finger, you got patched with the pakia. Incredible. Remember again, the Mishnah told the story when the beginning, before they, before they instituted a lottery for the Chuma Sadashin, there were two Kohanim who were running up the ramp and one pushed the other off the ramp and the one who fell off broke his leg. After that, they instituted the lottery. It says the Gemara Tana Rabbanabos says it's an overwhelming story. Two Kohanabos say were racing up the ramp, racing up the ramp to see who was going to get there first in order to do Truma Sadashan. What happened? One of them again was within four amas of his friend. 
Notal sakin v'taka lo belibo. And I both say the Kohanim, the, I guess the coin who was, who was losing or was being gained on, see, he took out a knife and he stabbed the other coin in the heart. So we'll say an overwhelming story. Amor Rabbi Tzadok Amaylo Sa'ulam. Rabbi Tzadok got up and he stood on the stairs of the base Hamikdash. Amor Achenu Beis Yisrael Shimu. My my brothers, my brothers, right? Beis Yisrael, listen. Haru Omer Ki Matzi Chava Ba'adama V'Yotzu Zikinecha V'Shoftecha. The pasuk says, if you find a dead body, if you find a dead body on the earth, the elders and the judges will come out. Anu Amila Havi Egla Arufa. Who now we have a dead coin? Who should bring the egla arufa? Ala ira ala hazaros. Should it be the people in the city of Yerushalayim? The people in the Beis Hamikdash? Go kolaam bebechia. And the entire nation began to cry. Rabbi Tzaddik was lamenting. Do you see what just happened here in the Beis Hamikdash? So we'll say the story goes on. Ba aviv shaltinok. So the father of this young man, Rabbi say it calls the stabbed coin a tinok. Now tinok is not, of course not literally tinok. It means he was a young man. The father of the young man came. He heard what happened to his son. And he saw his son was not yet dead. So the son was stabbed in the heart, was not yet dead. But was good. means like, um, what do you call it? Mefarfer um, means like shaking. It's the pre-death rattle. I don't know what the, what the technical term for it is. But he's some convulsing. He's some convulsing right in the throes of death. Amar, harehu kaparasam. My son should be our kapara. Va'adayim b'ni mefarfer. My son is still convulsing. He's not yet dead. V'lonit ma'asakin. The knife that was used to stab him is not yet tame. Remove it from the base hamikdash. L'lamdecha shekash sha'aleim taras kilim yoser mishvichos damim. We see that both say that the nature of the generation was that ritual purity, taras kalim, was more important to them than bloodshed. Now we'll see exactly what to do with that statement. What, what, what exactly does that mean? V'chinu, Omer Sotu, it says, V'gam dam naki shafach menashe harbe me'od, Menashe shed so much blood until literally again one from one end of Yerushalayim to the other end of Yerushalayim was filled with blood. So we'll say so. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Hi, Maisa. So we'll say so. Now we have two two stories. Two stories. So this episode of say of one coin stabbing the other. Hi, Maisa Kadim. Which now say we have one we have one story of one coin stabbing another and another story of a coin pushing the other off the ramp. Which story came first? If the story of the stabbing came first, so we'll say, if they didn't establish a lottery after a stabbing, they only established a lottery after the pushing, it doesn't seem to make sense. Rather, it must be that the case of where one coin pushed the other, that story came first. But if that's the case, if that's the case that, they instit- that the story of the shoving came first, they instituted this, the lottery after that story, then why was there even a race of two Kohanim going up the ramp that led one to stab the other? It was already being decided by lottery. Rather, again, I will say, that unfortunately, the story of the stabbing came first. But yet, interestingly enough, they did not institute the lottery after the story of the stabbing. Why not? 
Bosei because they figured this was an outlier. This was such an Bosei. This, this, this was not the norm. This was a horrific situation. They didn't feel the need to enact legislation because they thought that this episode was such an aberration. However, Kevan Dechazi but I will say, after they saw now that again, another episode happened, and again, all right, it wasn't a stabbing, but it was a shoving, they realized, you know what, we have to legislate this, and that's when they instituted, ultimately, again, the, that's when they instituted the pious, the lottery. Which I will say something very interesting also, in general, you see this, that when Chazal legislate things, legislation is not usually a reaction to extreme circumstances, because you can't legislate for extreme circumstances. We legislate for normative circumstances. So they didn't legislate after the episode of the stabbing, because they felt that that was an aberration. But once again, the episode of the shoving happened, realized, okay, there's a certain amount of aggressive behavior that's happening. That's when they began legislation. So I will say, now the Gemara goes back. Amar Rabbi Tzadok, Amalo Sa'ulam, Va'amar, Achinu Be'isishal Shimuna, Hariyu Omer Ki Matzei Chalabad, so we'll say after the stabbing, Rabbi Tzadok gets up and he cries out to the people, who's going to bring the Egla Arufa for this young Kohen who was stabbed? Is it going to be the residents of Yerushalayim? Is it going to be the Kohanim of the Beisamim? Do you bring an Egla Arufa for a corpse that's found in Yerushalayim? And there's 10 things that are unique about Yushayim, and one of them is, Amadeis, Eina Mavia Egla Arufa. Yushayim does not bring an Egla Arufa. Furthermore, Va'od, Lo Nadamiko, Ksiv, Vahanadamiko. Further, you're say, when do you bring an Egla Arufa? When? When you don't know who killed the individual. I'm say, here, this was in broad daylight, everybody saw it happen. Everybody saw it happen. To which the Gemara says, you're right. Rather, Elekadei Laharbos Bebechiyah. Rabbi Tzadok was not coming, Rabbi Tzadok was not coming to go ahead and make an actual statement. Well, he wasn't saying he wasn't going ahead and making an actual halachic statement, but rather he was saying something to elicit emotion. Who is going to bring the Egla Arufa? Who is going to atone for this incredible and terrible tragedy that has just unfolded, I will say, right inside of the confines of the Beis HaMikdash? Literally on the ramp of the Mizbeach, one Kohen is stabbing another. Reb Tzavik says, how are we ever going to atone for this? He wasn't making a halachic statement. He was making an emotional statement. And I will say, the Gemara analyzes the last part of the story. Ba'aviv shal tinok umatzak shumafarfer. Amar hariyu kaparasam va'adayin binikayim. So also remember again, then the father of the, the father of the dying coin comes. And once you have to imagine the scene, he sees his son dying, convulsing in the throes of death. My son should be a kapara. But quick, remove the knife, remove the knife, because my son is not yet dead, therefore the knife has not become tame. So I will say, the bright ended off by saying, Lamdecha to teach you, Shekashalim Taras Kalim, Yosem Mishrichos Damim. That literally, they took Taras Kalim, ritual purity of, intense, of utensils, they treated it with even more severity than murder. So the Imar says, what does that mean? Iboyluhu, Shvichos Damim Hu Dezal, Aval Taras Kalim Kiddekai Makaima. Does it say that unfortunately, they, there was less, that, that, that they were desensitized to murder, but they maintained their sensitivity to ritual impurity? Oh, Dilma, Shvichos Damim Kiddekai Makaima. No, maybe no, no. They had a sensitivity to murder but they just had even a heightened sensitivity to ritual purity or impurity. So Tashma, the Gemara says, well, look at the end of the Brisa. 
V'taras kelim ki dekaimakaim. Rabbi also remember again, how does the Brisa end? The Brisa quotes the Pasuk from Menasha. And it says, Menasha had engaged in such widespread bloodshed that literally Yerushalayim was filled with blood from one end of the city to the other. So what do you see from Rabbi Osai? That unfortunately, there was a total, there was a total decline in the appreciation of human life. Bloodshed was so commonplace. That was saying, I want to point out over here. But well, was it bloodshed was so commonplace. What Menashe did was he desensitized the general populace towards bloodshed. There was such a desensitization towards bloodshed that ultimately, again, that even the father of this child, when he comes, as he's sad to see his child killed, of course, of course, of course, goes without saying. But at the end of the day, they were so used to bloodshed that the father has the presence of mind to speak about the Taras Kalim. So we'll say, two incredible lessons that come out of this. So first thing, I will say, in general, in general, how careful we have to be with misplaced priorities. With misplaced priorities. So we'll say, because sometimes a person could go ahead and uphold a value, but that value pales in comparison, pales in comparison, ultimately, again, to the other values that are being trampled on. In other words, Tara's Kalim is incredibly important. Is incredibly important. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, bloodshed, when you see bloodshed happening in a Mikdash, that's first and foremost. The fact that the father is preoccupied with the ritual purity of the knife when his son has just been stabbed represents a society which has misplaced priorities. And I both say, again, this, this is Maisim Bechol Yom. There could be many important priorities. But certain priorities can trample upon others. Ritual Taras Kalim, of course, is incredible importance. But Taras Kalim, when you see murder happening inside of the base Hamikdash, misplaced, misplaced. It also shows us how ultimately, again, over time, we can become desensitized to things. We'll say, and just one, the misplaced priorities, we'll say, uh, there's so much to say about this because I happen to think this is one of the great challenges that we face in contemporary society today. Just a great sense of misplaced priorities. You know, it, it, it is important to stand up for injustice, any kind of injustice, racial injustice, other forms of injustice. But just because you're standing up for injustice does not give you the right to, to go ahead and inflict other injustices. There's always this balance that you have to be so careful that in the pursuit of one form of justice, in holding up certain values, you don't trample on others. So Taras Kalim is important, but it's not more important ultimately, again, than loss of life in the Beis HaMikdash. It also teaches us, it also teaches us just about how we become desensitized to things. And I will say this is so incredibly important because we change over the course of life without even realizing that we've changed. Whether it's that a person takes certain religious liberties and at the end of the day, I don't even realize that I've so fundamentally changed myself in taking those religious liberties and taking those spiritual liberties until one day, I, and again, that's what happened over here, Menasha desensitized them. When I go ahead and I engage in the same behavior over and over and over, I desensitize myself to the wrongness of that behavior to the point where I don't even think about it anymore. But say, here's an extreme example of this. Bloodshed had become so commonplace that no one even thought about it. No one even thought about it. That's the power of desensitizing yourself to evil. Ultimately, again, it becomes something that you just accept 
as a reality of life. An incredible Gemara. So Gemara goes right. So we'll say the Pasukur is talking about the removal of the ash. Now let's just talk about this for just a moment. When it comes to removal of ash, it happens in two ways. There is the everyday Trumas Hadashan, which is, remember again, removing some of the ash from the Mizbeach, but it's just a little bit of ash. And then there's the Hotsa'as Hadashan. Hotsa'as Hadashan means that when the ash on the top of the Mizbeach, that pile became too much, you would actually take it outside of the Beis HaMikdash. They would, they would dispose of the ash somewhere outside. So the Gemara says that when taking out the ash, or the truth is also for Trumas Hadashan, the coin has to wear Begadam Achirim. Shomani, Shomani, I might have thought that the Begad Demachirim of the Truma Sadeshan or Sadeshan are maybe unconsecrated garments, just like the Kohen on Yom Kippur wears regular white garments, which for him are regular weekday, right? That's the equivalent of regular weekday garments. Therefore, the Pasik says he shall take off his big day kuhuna and wear other clothing. The Torah is equating the clothing the Kohen puts on for Truma Sadashan with the clothing he takes off. Just like the clothing he was wearing are Big Day Kodesh, so too, again, I both say the clothing he wears for Truma Sadashan are also Big Day Kodesh. So why does the Torah say he changes into other clothing? What does that mean? It means that he wears clothing of lesser value. Now, both of these are incredibly important. So what the Gemara says in the Ramah Paskin is as well. The coin would change his regular big day kahuna to take out the ash, right? What would he put on? He still wore big day kahuna, but he put on like worn out big day kahuna. Used big day kahuna. So he would change out of the nice big day kahuna and put on the used big day kahuna. But Lazar Omer, the Omer Achirim Vahotzi, learns that the juxtaposition of Achirim Lahotzi teaches us that even Kohanim, who would not normally be fit for Avoda, let's say because of a mum, were permitted to go ahead and take out the ash. Because I will say again, why does the Kohanim wear different clothing for Truma Sadashan? Because the same way that the servant doesn't cook, or say doesn't serve his master in the same clothing he cooked in. Right, interesting, Marshall. Right, when you right in the kitchen, you wear a, right when you're preparing the meal, you wear a certain clothing. You change your clothing before you serve the master. So too, when you go in and you take out the ash, that's like cooking in the kitchen. You wear certain clothing, but then you change your clothing into better clothing when doing the avoda inside of the base hamikdash. Amrei shlokish kemachlokish ba'otzar basinat. We'll stop over here for today. We'll pick up a merit session with Amrei shlokish.